coming up on Thunder Pop. It is the 73rd episode of the Thunder Pop podcast. I'm Stephen Presley, and today we're joined by two very special guests on this very special episode of Thunder Pop. We've got Mr. Joe O'Connell and Gary Kitt. And I'm very excited to have them both here. And they've got a documentary about to drop, a huge, massive, exciting project, Love and Other Stunts. We premiered at uh, Cinema Wasteland uh, a little while ago, but this is the first Texas screening. Texas screening. So you're for your hometown. Yeah. This will be the first time that it's been screened in your hometown. They're both here in Austin, Texas. So we're going to talk about these two great guys and, and uh, the project they've been working on, Love and Other Stunts. And then at the top of the show, we've got breaking news about what else other than Star Wars, of course. All right, let's hit the theme music and we'll be right back. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a little hoarse. I should have had some tea before I did this. Uh, yeah. And over here in the corner, I didn't mention that I have Kirk O'Matic filming for us. He's not actually on a mic. Um, I've taken mics away from Kirk. That's a good move. Yeah. He, he's now, he's still allowed to come in, but he doesn't, we don't give him a mic. So that's the deal we made with him. Is, yeah, deal with the devil for sure. Have you ever been with Kirk? I know you worked with Kirk because he yeah. worked. He worked with you on the documentary. Yes, yeah, and yeah. your cinematographer, correct? Yeah, I knew. I but you know, I watched him on uh, Austin Access TV in the '90s. So that's and that's how he came about to be involved with the documentary. So there was a connection there. Yeah, like a lot of people in this town, they just sort of become incestuous, where we have connections from different people that we yeah. mutually know, and and that was the heyday of Austin Access TV. With Kirk O'Matic. It was. It yeah. was. I mean, that was a golden age of Access TV was, would you say, probably uh, in the 1990s? Yeah. That, that's when it was for me. Yeah. I, I had moved back to town, uh, moved back to Austin in, in 91. Yeah. Uh, and I watched it a lot. You had Kirk so. with Cheap Peaks. You had... Uh, and the, Camera One and Cyberscope and yeah. Plastic Yaks and all these crazy you had, films. You had... Uh, yeah. <laughs> You had show with no name. You had Wolf Zendik. Oh, you yeah. had uh, uh, what's the the pu- you had Puppetos. Puppetos. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some, and then you had uh, well later you have the the guys that did the real deal, the movie review show. Right. Now, yeah. now they're they're on YouTube with Double Toasted Corey, yeah. Corey and and Martin, and then also uh, well, and then uh, on a on a different level you got Alex Jones. You had Alex Jones. You had General Cosmic. I don't know if anybody remembers General Cosmic. That name he, sounds familiar. General yeah. Cosmic was an alien. I went to his house and interviewed him one day. Uh, it was probably it was, a very it was fascinating. Did I you edited Alex Jones' first film? Yeah. Down there. There's some crossover there with an alien and Alex Jones in the same That's building. Right. Yeah. That's right. It was crazy. Time. Did the alien ever go on Alex Jones' show? I doubt it but i know that uh, i i know that alex jones and and uh charlie but the show with no name had a little fight 
Yes, there, Charlie won. That was in the paper. Rec- <laughs> that was in the paper recently. Yeah, Charlie ended up punch- yeah. punching Alex Jones, yeah. which he, which he'll admit that he did. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so he he's, he can always have that claim yeah. to fame that he socked Alex Jones. That's a t-shirt. That's I, a t-shirt. Yeah, I, I socked Alex. Hit. I socked Alex Jones. Yeah. yeah, he could even have a little have an artist kind of render a little drawing. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, when I get up, Kirk goes, right. when I get off on a tangent. But anyway, you work with Kirk. And you know Kirk when he gets ramped up on caffeine. That's right. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's quite a show <laughs> <laughs> when he has more coffee than he needs to have. Breaking news up in this place. Okay, this is coming to us courtesy of The Verge. This weekend, Ron Howard's solo film is hitting theaters, but Disney and Lucasfilm are already lining up one of the next standalone films. Uh, According to reports, it will focus on one of the franchise's most beloved villains. And no, not Darth Vader. According to The Hollywood Reporter, they report, writer-director James Mangold, and hopefully I'm not mangling his name, Ha ha ha! Is working on a movie focused on none other than Boba Fett. Rumors of a Boba Fett movie have circulated for years, but Mangold, who you know is the director of Logan, by the way, would make a particularly strong choice for this kind of project. His very career has taken him from dramas like Copland and Girl Interrupted to westerns like 310 to Yuma. But genre fans will know him best as the writer-director of, yes, just like I said, Wolverine swan song, Logan. The, f- the film brought an unexpected emotional depth and sadness to the character, which could make Mangold particularly well-suited to crafting a story around Boba Fett. Very interesting. So, yeah, there's that report there. So, we'll be interested to see what they come up with on that. And the, uh, as far as we know, the Obi-Wan movie is still... Um, still looks like could still happen it's uh it hasn't been unconfirmed uh it's just that in addition to that this Obi- this uh, boba fett movie is starting to pick up steam i wanted to be a pirate a pilot a football player a gangster i just wanted to be those things and the only place i could see that happening was in the movies Hearing this word, stuntman, that stuntmen actually did the thing. All the things that I wanted to do, they were the guys that were doing it. Here, Gary Kent, celebrity stuntman. And this documentary was about Gary's life, love and other stunts. And uh, how, did this, how did this project come to be? Because I know you, Joe, coming from the background of the Austin Chronicle, Dallas Morning News, correct? Yeah. As a writer for the Dallas Morning News and yeah. in, in film uh, with the Austin Chronicle, writing about film for the Austin Chronicle. Then you're, you're a published author. Right. And I'm you're a fiction bo- writer, yeah. Yeah, a fiction writer. So was it just a natural segue for you to go from, from new from new from writing and then the book and then doing documentary? It's kind of a combination of, of what you do in fiction and what you do in nonfiction. Mm-hmm. But, but really, 21 years ago, I went to a writer's conference in Austin 
an agents conference and I met this guy who looked kind of like a silver haired Burt Reynolds and he was dressed up and he was slinging his briefcase around and he was trying to sell what became his memoir. Uh, And I went home and I told my then girlfriend, now wife, Hey man, I met this guy. He's fascinating. Uh, So, but I didn't get his contact information. So I had to, Mm -hmm. so the first thing I did was go to I love video and rent Satan Satis, which Gary stars in. Uh, it's a great title, by the way. Yeah, that's Al Adamson. And that's Sam Sherman, the, pr- the producer, did those great titles, I think. Uh, watched that, and then I tracked him down, and then I wrote a couple of articles about him. We became friends, and what he was at that conference for was to sell his memoir, which he was working on then. Uh, but it took him a while longer to do it. And the memoir was coming out, and I knew that I kept saying, Gary, somebody needs to do a documentary about you. Uh, and the, the time came and I said, oh, I guess it's me. And so I, I overdid it and hired two crews to, to cover that, his book release at Book People. And then I had a notion of what the story was going to be. And it, it's kind of, it's that really. Uh, I've made the comment, if somebody doesn't like my documentary, that's okay because I made the documentary that I intended to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, the structure is there for what, what I intended. And we start off, the, the documentary starts off with Gary releasing his his memoir, Shadows and Light. Wow. Uh, so he had, he had some really good stuff there to kind of start the story, the, your composition for the documentary. Yeah, he's, you know, he was involved in, he was there, ground, ground, ground central of uh, the independent film scene revolution of the 60s and 70s, the drive-in movies, you know, anything that, Hell's Angels on Wheels, The Savage Seven, uh, Targets, a great Peter Bogdanovich film. What else? He was involved in more than 100 films. Mm-hmm. St- Jack Nicholson's personal stuntman on, on the early films that Nicholson did, stuff like Psych Out. Uh, you know, he worked on Riding the Whirlwind and the shooting two films shot at the same time for Monty Hellman. Jack Nicholson wrote one of them. So, you know, he was there hanging out with Charles Manson and, you know, the whole crowd. Now, it's funny you mentioned the Charles Manson thing, because Kirk, Kirk was on the show a while back, and he mentioned, we talked about the documentary for a little bit, and uh, he mentioned Charles Manson, because they're the Quentin Tarantino uh, film that's, that's uh, in pre-production right now, I believe. Uh, there's Leonardo DiCaprio, and I believe Brad Pitt playing the actor's stuntman. Brad Pitt playing Gary Kent, essentially. Yeah, so, nobody, that's nobody's going to say that for a uh-huh. fact, but Gary Kent was hanging out with his buddy Bud Cardos at the Spawn Ranch, which and Tarantino is a big fan of Gary. Tell, talk about it, Gary. Talk about tell them about uh, Charles Manson. Oh, Manson. Uh, well, everybody knows almost everything about him. When there, there's a the Spawn Ranch where Manson hung out was a low budget shooting place for people that wanted to do westerns or period pieces because there were no TV antennas or, you know, modern things at all. So everybody went out there to shoot and Spawn, George Spawn, the blind owner of Spawn Ranch, Mm -hmm. uh, had horses that he would rent out on the weekend to people that wanted to bring their kids and go riding. They were mostly nags, but good horses, good guys. so we would shoot out there, and these girls started coming down, the creepy crawlies. We didn't know at the time. 
The murders had already been committed, but we had no idea Charles was in charge of them. Uh, they would come down and beg our lunches from us, from the movie crews. And so we would just give them a sandwich or a cupcake or something. And they would hover around. There were these big rocks around the uh, Spawn Ranch. And they would sit up on those rocks, and they looked like these strange birds just sitting up there waiting for a cupcake or a pretzel or something. And we had a dune buggy belonged to Bud Cardos, my buddy, great, great stuntman, Bud Cardos. And we were using it as a camera car, and it broke down. And I was telling one of the girls, I think Krenwinkel, that we needed a mechanic. And she said, I've got a great mechanic here. And I said, well, send for him. And in came Charles Manson, and he was just this little guy about five feet four inches tall, if that. Wow. No shirt, no shoes. He just looked like a little ragamuffin. And he looked like a shoplifter because he wouldn't uh -huh. look you in the eye. He'd always be like this, you know, down and looking, sort of glancing up at you. And he said he could fix it, but he wanted 70 bucks up front. So Bud gave him 70 bucks, and off he went. Next morning, we came back and hadn't been fixed. So I told Manson, I said, get Manson here. And he came, and I said, you'd better fix this because Bud is a really tough guy, and he's going to rearrange your anatomy <laughs> if you don't fix this. So he got under it and fixed it right away. And sometimes when we'd shoot out there, he didn't come and hang out like the girls did. Yeah. But their job was to try and lure the crew to come to their parties and join their clan. And I never went because they just looked too scruffy and too, you know, they were covered with cold sores and bruises and so, no, I don't want to go. But a couple, the Casey Kasem, who was a great DJ in the yes. old days, he was on one of the films we did. And Casey and Jody McRae, Joel McRae's son, went to one of their parties overnight. And the next day they said, all they got was this diatribe from Charlie to join his gang and uh. become one of his people. That's what he used the girls for, was to try troll guys into... They do that in Scientology. Sure. I yeah, remember yeah. being down at the UT campus uh, back in early 2000s, and they would always have a couple of really the best-looking girls that they could find to be sure, the, kind yeah. of the front for the Scientology. They would, so I was, like, a few times I wanted to stop and say, hey, tell me about this Scientology. You know? Right, right, right. Yeah. It works. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was Charlie. And then uh, later we found out at the time in Hollywood, I think Kirk may have been there, but everybody was kind of frightened because no one had any idea who was doing this stuff, the, the murders. And then uh, when they got Charlie, it just blew us away. That, that was the guy at the Spawn Ranch, you know, that hung out. But he was just this little, you almost felt sorry for him. You wanted to uh -huh. give him a couple of bucks and a, yeah. you know, some porridge or something. Yeah, he looked like he was starved, like really needed some food and kind of like a... a little bitty guy. Too, yeah, right? yeah, 5'4", five, 5'3", five, something like that. In some ways, do you think that his, his stature and then also his appearance of looking un, unintimidating, but almost kind of like we felt sorry for him, kind of worked f a little bit for him in favor yeah. of him being able to trick people? Yeah. And it's, then they made him intimidating when they did that. that yeah, he had in the pictures, you'd see these big eyes. Yeah. He didn't have that when we were there. He was just this little shifty kind of eyes. So yeah. there was yeah. nothing hypnotic about him or that you would follow across the street even. You know? So the media has kind of built that up where over the years, yeah. it seems like, with making him kind of this this dark, magical kind of uh, char character of... of yeah, a yeah. little elf guy. 
there was a stunt guy at the Spahn Ranch named Shorty Shea. He wasn't really a stunt guy. He was a wrangler for the horses on the weekend. Uh-huh. But he said he was a stunt guy, and I think he did maybe a couple of low-budget movies, a fight or something. Mm-hmm. But we knew that the real stunt guys knew he wasn't one of us. Yeah. And he would do things. He said, I can do something I'll bet you won't do. Okay, what is that, Shorty? <laughs> and he would go get a horse, tie a rope around the saddle horn, get behind the horse and tie the rope around his neck, and then he'd throw a rock at the horse, and the horse would go running off, dragging him by the neck. And I said, you're right, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> who, who would do that? What is that? Said, That's my stunt. That's my um, but Shorty was killed by Charlie and the boys, and they dumped him in a well, part of his body in a well out on the ranch. Wow. And we used to eat lunch by that well, yeah. not knowing. Shorty was down, you know, what remained of him was down in the bottom of that well. And found later. Yeah. Strange, strange times. Wow. Do you do you ever talk to, does Quentin Tarantino, have you met him or have you talked to him before? Yeah, he came to Austin. Uh, it's funny because I didn't know Quentin swears he's a fan of mine, mm-hmm. me and Bud Cardos. And I didn't know, and I was home in the bathroom. We had a phone in the bathroom, and I was reading the paper, and the phone rang, and it was Lars Nielsen from the Alamo. I didn't yeah. know Lars. Mm-hmm. But he said, Quentin's in town, and he's having his Q-Fest, and you're one of his favorite stuntmen. He wants you to come to it. And I said, yeah, sure, because I didn't know Quentin. I knew he was. All of a sudden, this guy got on the phone. He said, this is Quentin, Gary. I'd sure like you to come. And I finally realized, well, maybe it is. So I went, and yeah. yeah, there was Quentin. He came up and gave me a big hug, and we talked. And then much later, when he was here doing one of his films, mm-hmm. I went to, I was going to a uh, art show, and I couldn't find out where it was. So I stopped at the Santa Fe Hotel to ask directions. Mm-hmm. And I parked right in the parking lot, and I asked them, and they said, we don't know, but go inside, they'll tell you. So I left my car with the keys in it running, and I went inside, and there was Quentin sitting at a table having breakfast. He said, Gary, come on over. I said, my car. He said, forget your car. Come on, sit down. So I sat down, and we had breakfast, and we just talked. And that was when I realized we were talking about Jack Nicholson. Yeah. He's a Nicholson fan, too. And we went through the shooting and riding the whirlwind with two films I did where I doubled Jack. Quentin knew every line of dialogue, everything everybody said, wherever the films played, he knew. I mean, this guy had a photographic memory. As far as film is concerned, Quentin. So then I really liked him. I got to, gee, he's really a nice guy. And I still think that because I don't know any of the bad stories about Quentin. Right. Well, everybody's got their uh, their bad side <laughs> or their bad days and their good days. And, and I you sure hear, do. You hear the stories. Me and too. What's me that? <laughs> what's that? Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> when, when, when news came out about Brad Pitt and, and the... It's called uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. He got a Gary got a call from Sam Sherman, and Sam Sherman was mm-hmm. the producer for Al Adamson, and so mm-hmm. they did a whole lot of films together. And he calls Gary up and says, "Hey, Quentin Tarantino's got you in, in his next movie, right?" And we and we it, it's potentially you and Bud maybe combined into one guy. You Quentin think? told me he loved uh, the name Gary Kenton Bud Cardos. That that were his fa- I don't think we were his favorite stuntmen. We were mm-hmm. his favorite names. Maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's just combining them. Well, he definitely knew the history. I mean, he knew he had his ah, information yeah. down. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, amazing. But these so, guys were the stunt guys hanging out at Spawn Ranch. Yeah. 
So, so there's a very likely that he took he's taking the two and combining him to build that one character, Brad Pitt. Right. That's gonna Brad Pitt's gonna play. Absolutely. And I think it's good casting. I think I like I like Brad Pitt playing you in that era. Yeah, there you go. Why not? <laughs> I mean, Burt Reynolds is too old to do it now. So I mean, yeah. to Burt, play the Burt young. Reynolds is in it though. Yeah, he's playing George Spahn. That's right. He yeah, was just cast. Yeah. You guys know a lot about this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. It was close to home for him. So yeah, obviously, I would think there would be a there has to be a cameo in there at least a cameo for Gary. I would hope. I'm, well, I, oh yeah. I'm putting that so, out someone, there. Someone tell him. I'm putting that out there. Oh, I like that when they do these movies and they had they pay homage to maybe the someone that that, that was part of the the, the inspiration yeah. for the story and they give him a cameo in some capacity. Um, kind of like Stan Lee does in the Marvel movies, where he's in every, he's got a little part in every movie. I'd yeah. like to see Gary doing something <laughs> like that. So putting that out there, throwing yeah. it out to the universe and see if it, see if it lands. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you definitely see it happening. 1959 Hollywood. Yes. You move there, right? Yes. For a kid like me, that wasn't even a vision in their parents' eye yet. Paint that picture for me. You know, we have, what, 1959 Hollywood. Coming there for the first time. And you were just getting out of the... Was it the... You were in the Navy? Navy. Yeah. Naval Air. Naval Air? Yeah, you were just getting out of Naval Air. You went straight to Hollywood pretty quick? I went to... Uh, from Corpus Christi. I was the PIO officer, public mm-hmm. information officer mm-hmm. for the Blue Angels, the flying team. Yeah. And uh, a great gig. And I loved the guys. The station in Corpus Christi. And uh, when I got out, I went to Houston, and I was going to act at the, I was radio announcing at KTHD, and I was acting at the Alley Theater. Yeah. The Alley broke up at that time, and everyone was going to New York, but I had just seen Brando in On the Waterfront. Yeah. And I thought, that man, what a movie. That's what I want to do. So I took a Greyhound to Hollywood. That was my... And I got there, and everyone was out of work. All the actors were out of work. Yeah. And I thought... Man, I can't afford this. You know, I don't want to be out of work. And I was on uh, Gower Boulevard, and Frank Sinatra was shooting a movie. And they had all these cars with these guys standing next to them, looked like gladiators. And all of a sudden, the megaphone guy said, Okay, stuntmen, get in your cars. These guys got in there, okay, ready, action. And bam, they started rolling cars and fighting with each other. And I thought, Man, I want to be a stuntman. How do I do that? Yeah. And uh, I had done a couple of films as an actor, and I knew a sound man named Art Names, who later on became a director also, mm-hmm. directed a movie called Snakes. Uh, but Art said, I'm going to Utah on two westerns, and I'm doing it for a guy named Jack Nicholson. He's just getting started, and they're looking for a stuntman. And I said, I'm a stuntman. Of course, I wasn't, but I lied. And, uh, well, that's where it starts. Is the is, yeah, is, yeah. You just talk. Your you way start in. believing it and start saying it. But but you asked what it was like. Then the studios were so intimidating with these big mm-hmm. gates that you could not get through. Of course, everyone thought if I could just get through the gate, I could get in a movie. But forget it. You know, unless you had just the right connection and the right this kind of the same today, but it's much more porous than it was then. Yeah, just sort of forbidding and. The town was full of out-of-work people. So I went to meet Jack. They sent. They said, uh, Jack said, do you know how to get a horse to slow down, get sick, fall down, and die? Yeah. I had no problem, Jack. I had no idea how to do that. I thought, that horse is going to have to be a great actor. <laughs> but they were shooting up in Utah, and we went up, and I had the common sense to call a vet 
who came out and shot him up with a tranquilizer. Uh, that's so the horse gradually slowed down, lay down, and went to sleep. And we got the shot, but I was doubling jack and falling off things, stagecoaches and horses. I didn't know. You dig up the ground. Mm -hmm. You wear rubber guns. I had a real gun on my hip, and I landed on that hip. I had a bruise like this. Yeah. But I thought, well, this stunt business is a tough business. But then uh, the Daniel Boone came up. We were in Kanab, Utah. And they had four of the best stuntmen in the business, Ted White, uh, Charlie Horvath, who was one of the Marines they put with Eisenhower during the Second World War. They thought if he can get by Charlie Horvath, they can have him, you know, because he was just so tough. But they had these guys that were Roy Jensen, who later on did a great fight scene with Clint Eastwood in a movie. The best, and they wanted another stuntman. And they were talking to Jack. They're saying, "Well, we're going to have to send back to Holly." Jack said, "I've got a great stuntman. He doesn't use pads or anything." <laughs> and and they said, "Send him over to us." So I went over to Daniel Boone, and after they really put me through it, you know, I was the fresh guy. But they took me under their wing, and I started doing stunts on Daniel Boone. So by the time I got back to Hollywood, I was a real stuntman, you know, with the guys. And back then, it was a really small community. There were only uh, a few stunt guys, and stuntmen just hire other stuntmen they know because mm -hmm. it's the one job on a film where you can get killed or yeah. severely hurt, you know. So uh, it's they always hire each other, someone they know and trust. But I got into that group through Daniel Boone. And so from then on, I did a lot of stunt work, thank God. Yeah, saved me. And in the movie, the movie kind of follows Gary and some of his stunt pals, Bud Cardos, mm -hmm. Chuck Bale, Bob Ivey, and a little bit Don Jones, who was better known as the director. Bob Ivey played the mummy in Baba Hotep. I don't know if you saw it, but it's a great movie. Mm -hmm. Really funny. Bob was the mummy in it. One of the best car stuntmen I've ever known. He could do any. He holds a world record for pipe ramp. He did a hearse roll on a movie called Phantasm, I think Phantasm 4. Mm -hmm. But that hearse up in Laurel Canyon that hits the ramp and it goes 128 feet end over end. Yeah, that's famous. Yeah, that, yeah. That famous, shot, yeah. Famous gave My buddy Bob did that. And then, yeah, the guys. It's a great car stunt. Yeah. I got a trailer from Love and Other Stunts. So this is the trailer one. I'll play a little bit of this. Thug number one, um, uh, biker who administers beating to hero. Uh, that because I really did know Gary largely through uh, roles as a thug and a bad man. You know, doing doing stunts is is dangerous work. It's scary sometimes. Actually, if you're afraid, you shouldn't be doing it. It's it's like football. If you're afraid of taking hits, you shouldn't be out playing it because that's the name of the game. And I noticed this beautiful woman walking ahead of me into the building. She had this long, shimmering blonde hair, this gorgeous face, and she disappeared into a room called Dance. So strong, I knew it was a power place for me. From the actual start of uh -huh. when this idea was inspired, and we talked about that, right. to completion of project, how long are we talking about? 
started in 2009. So mm -hmm. nine years forever. Yeah. I had to learn how to make a documentary yeah. for one thing. And then I had to, then I had to learn that, that I had to really do it, you know, mm -hmm. because that was, that was the last thing because I thought I knew the story I wanted to tell. And I wanted to tell more than just the story of his stunt career, which is fine. That's a fine enough movie, but I knew Gary by this point and I knew his wife. Yeah. Uh, and I knew that there was a personal story that I, about him and their relationship that I wanted to tell, which is why it's called Love and Other Stunts. The, mm -hmm. the love is also, I think, for his buddies, his stunt buddies, but but it's mainly his wife. Uh, so I started out not knowing what I was doing, trying to just hire people mm -hmm. to come help me out to film and everything. Then I brought somebody on uh, who's associate producer. He did a lot of filming and got a lot of stuff done, but he but he was also involved with his own project. Mm -hmm. And it and uh, I had to realize that it was my project, and I and so I started taking my little bitty camera. Yeah, not this one actually, but one before that. And I would just go and shoot. And so you, when you see the third act of the film, there there's three acts to it. The first one is mm -hmm. Gary's stunt career. Stunt movie career, independent film scene. It's really kind of a historical context in a lot of ways. Then we go into Gary and his wife. And, and that's who we see here yeah, in this Gary, trailer. Yeah, Tommy. Uh, mm -hmm. And they worked on films together, and she was his producer when he started making films himself. Yeah. And then the last act is, is Gary now and the challenges that he's faced in, in recent years. And that's so, shown in a little bit in the trailer. What you're yeah. talking about, yeah, some of that what you're talking about. There's been some health, yes, there's some health, health issues. stuff issues, yeah. And and I just started going, uh, you know, I went into the doctor's office with Gary when when stuff was going on and said, Hey man, can I film? And the camera was small, so I could mm -hmm. get away with it. And the same thing we went to back to where he was raised, he was raised out in the country in, in uh, Renton, Washington, born in Walla Walla, Washington, uh, the town they like so much they named it twice, right. Uh, and and raised in Renton, really really rural, uh, you know, it was a ranch basically. And we went back there for his his baby sister's funeral. Yeah. Uh, and it was a good opportunity to go back and just see this world that he grew up in. Uh, he was a he was a football player at the University of Washington. He was a quarterback on Daryl Royal's football team at the University of Washington before he came to the University of Texas. Uh, and, but then he left town to go join the Navy and get in trouble. But, but there's some really great moments there. Mm -hmm. And so I just was just filming this stuff, you know. We, we followed him around. Uh, so I'm aiming, for me as a filmmaker, I'm aiming for a human story. Yeah. Uh, beyond a story about making movies. So I, I tell Gary that if I'm successful... People will fall in love with Tommy mm -hmm. after watching the movie, uh, and she was really beautiful. She had yes. She, she came to my wedding, and she was wearing dark sunglasses, and she took them off. And I looked. She had these kind of. Uh, her eyes were kind of yellow brown, kind of a cat's mm -hmm. eye color, just beautiful. One She's thing I glamorous, say very glamorous. Along the way, uh, knowing Gary. I went into his garage one day and I saw these reels of film. And I said, what's that? He said, well, that's my film, Rainy Day Friends. So what the, what's it doing in the, the garage? Pyramid. Oh, the pyramid. I'm sorry. The pyramid. This is the pyramid, a film he shot in the 70s. And it's, it's when he had met Tommy and she stars in it. 
uh, and we, I said, man, you got to get that out of the garage and go play it somewhere. Yeah. So we ended up playing it at a theater in Austin at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, when I saw Tommy in that, it's like, oh, man. Just incredibly beautiful and smart and a good person. Just a really good person. Yeah. The whole making of the pyramid is a story in itself. Uh, but the Alamo Theater has picked it up and they're going to distribute it. They're doing a Blu-ray and the whole bit on it. Wow, the film I made 40 years ago, Steve. 40 years. Wow. And they're going to now put it out. So good for the Alamo. I yeah. love those guys. Bravo. That's great. Yeah, you've had some... You've a fan at the Alamo. I understand Tim Lee is a big fan of yours and, and, this, and Tim, what this project. Tim is. What a great guy. The whole Alamo group has just been great to me. I love yeah. those guys. And I love their programming. Well, you know. Yeah. They do some good work. Yeah. Some of the best cut uh, trailers um, and they run before the, the for their own um, in-house stuff um, that, I've ever, that I've ever seen. They've definitely changed the game uh, in, in the film industry. I wonder what they'll show before Love and other stunts. I really have no idea. Yeah, it's a good question. Whether they'll have anything specific for it. They always have something pre- prepped uh, for pre precursor to the film screening. It's trailers of the. I don't know. I don't. I don't. Yeah. Hell's bloody devils. Hell's bloody devils. Something like that. Yeah. Huh. yeah. I, w- I would have been. <laughs> would have been fun to be in that that meeting room to, to kind of throw out some ideas for mm-hmm. what they could have put in there for the for their uh, pre pre movie. Um, what brought you? You came. You ended up in Austin. You started off, of course, in Washington. Then you're, you're, you're stationed down in Corpus Christi, which is probably your first time in Texas, correct? Right, that was it. Then you went to Houston, which Houston, by the way, floats under the radar as having had a great you know, uh, art community and, and uh, film and theat- theatrical community. Absolutely. Really floats under the radar, but they had that. And even back then, it was, it was starting to fl- really flourishing. Uh, then you, you said you talked about how you ended up in, in California, but then you, at some point you make it back to, you make it back to Texas, Austin. What, what brings you this My way? My wife, Tommy, mm-hmm. she was born in Austin. Oh, okay. Yeah. Didn't care for LA. In fact, uh, I production managed U, UPM to a picture called Phantom of the Paradise. That was yes. a good movie. Academy Award nominated, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we shot it in Dallas over Christmas. The crew was split L.A. and New York, and neither one of them wanted to be in Dallas over Christmas. So they were all in a bad mood. And I hired local people to help, you know, bring them into the fold in Dallas. And Tommy was one. She became the choreographer Mm -hmm. on Phantom of the Paradise. But when we finished, I went back to L.A., and half the crew went to L.A., but I would go by their apartments where they were packing to move to L.A. And they all had these maps where they were figuring out their escape routes from from the... Uh, the earthquake? From the earthquake. Right. From the earthquake. They were all scared. They'd, a truck would go by and they'd go, is that an earthquake? You know, they <laughs> were just... So she couldn't wait to get back to Austin. And she talked me into... All my kids were pretty much grown. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a try. But at first I thought, Austin, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be rednecks, and they're going to be, <laughs> it's going to be awful. So I just hung out in South Austin, and I never went to town. I kept going back to L.A. because I was still doing stunts. Yeah. Uh, but gradually, through the Alamo and the guys at the Alamo, I got to go out and go around the town and mm-hmm. meet the people. I thought, this is a great town. And the music scene, unbelievable. You know, just great. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a very exciting uh, young town for sure. It's changed a lot 
But I know going after you go into L.A. and you come back to Austin, you compare them side by side. Austin starts looking real. Austin starts looking really good after a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, we're getting more crowded here all the time, so the traffic is starting uh, to catch awful, up awful. to what what Austin yeah. is. Uh, you meant, you were mentioning the uh, the Phantom of, of the Paradise. You were unit production manager on that, right? Right. Nominated for Academy Award. Do you get to go to the Academy Awards? I did not. If I had been in L.A., I would have gone. Yeah. Because the whole group of them went. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they just had a big reunion, too, in L.A. last year. But uh-huh. I couldn't go because I was here working on other things. Yeah. But, yeah, you're staying pretty busy. Yeah. Some people you've worked with. Jack Nicholson. Of course, we mentioned that. Penny Marshall. Yes, Penny. James Caan. James Caan. Oh, yeah, on Freebie and the Bean. Oh, yeah, yeah. James Caan. Bruce Willis. Bruce uh, Gary Marshall. Gary Marshall, nice guy, really nice guy. Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma, of course, directed Phantom of the Paradise. Mm-hmm. He spoke only, well, to me and to the cameraman and to the cast. He never communicated with the crew. They had no idea what was going on except for the AD or myself. Mm-hmm. He was just a very conspicuous guy in his fact that he didn't communicate with people he was not a huggy feely kind of guy yeah. at all but a good director and yeah it was a tough tough steve it was a tough shoot everyone got sick we had to bring a doctor by the set all the time to shoot people up with vitamins b12 and stuff because you know it was a grumpy cast and crew but the film turned out to be really good i thought what year is this Roughly had to be seventy four. So even in seventy four, you could get a B twelve shot. I mean, you could probably. I mean, it wouldn't be easy probably just to go out to a clinic and get one like you can now. Yeah. You can go to a place like any lab now and get a B twelve shot right now. Right. But back then, you could actually have dial up someone and someone could come and give you a B twelve shot. To the set. Yeah. What's that? The doctors, come the doctors would come and do it. And Gary used the money from working that film to pay for the pyramid. The pyramid, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's where the pyramid comes into fruition. Yeah. Right, right, right. Wow. So the uh, Burt Reynolds, I didn't mention him in that list. You were a stuntman for Burt Reynolds. I was not a stuntman no. for Burt Reynolds, no. No. Okay, so where did I see Burt Reynolds in, in this? Maybe me talking about that. Okay. Yeah, you, about you mentioned that, Burt Reynolds. Yeah. Jack Nicholson, though. That was one of your, That was where you got your, basically where he get you get your start. Is from I Jack love Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. I will always be a Nicholson fan. As a person, too, I know a lot of people say he was, you know, removed and a little angry all the time. Right. But I never saw that side of him. He was passionate. Yeah. But he was a nice guy. Really nice guy. Yeah. I mean, there's there's the uh, public image of, of what pu- the public perception of people. And then there's the real what person. the real what the real person is behind the scenes. And sometimes it's flip flop. Sometimes the, the public perception of a person is that the person is the goal like a golden great person you know this great golden person and then behind the scenes they could be just the most absolutely machiavellian right. rotten person you can th- ever meet and then you got these people that they have an image of being kind of rough around the edges like jack nicholson and sort of uh, a little bit you know edgy edgy is yeah. the perfect word for it but then probably a guy that can be just incredibly pleasant like you're saying if you get to know him Right. And if you're in that circle. I'll tell you a really quick Jack Nicholson story that doesn't involve me. My daughter-in-law, Maria, was down at Staples Center in L.A. Mm-hmm. 
and she went out to the parking lot to get in her car, and her car wouldn't start, and she was standing there reeling, mm -hmm. and Jack Nicholson came up, mm -hmm. and he said, what's, what's wrong? He didn't know her from Adam, and she said, I can't, he called his tow truck people to come and fix her car and take care of it, then he said, okay, good luck, and off he went. She said she couldn't believe it, but that's the kind of guy Jack could be. But you hear the story about him taking the golf club and yes. bashing in the car window. Well, everybody loses it once in a while. Oh, I've had some days like that, and so, but that—that's what makes—that's what—that's what gets the front page. That's what gets the headlines. It's yeah, not about Jack it. helping someone out that's having car trouble and having a bad day themselves. Yeah, he's a guy that's that's um, kind of floated under the radar last few years. Unfortunately, yeah, he's been kind of uh, keeping a low profile. Is he? Is he okay? Do we have you been in contact? Or do you know if he's? You know, I'm not. Uh, I know what's going on with Jack, but I'm not really at liberty to say he is having some health problems. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if he's going to act again or not, but probably not. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah. He was still really turning out. I mean, top-notch performances and top. I mean, he was not a guy that was phoning it in. I mean. You could mention uh, maybe Brando as an example, someone sort of their later years that maybe wasn't get Well, some people would even say even before his later years, but I know there's the notorious story of him working on Superman and Christopher Reeves complaining about how he was so hard to work with because he just wasn't trying. Right, uh, right. But Jack Nicholson turning out top-notch performances through his up, up until his last few, I mean, his last couple of films, it was still uh, turning out Academy Award nominations and Academy Award wins and Golden Globes and... Yeah. So I mean he's he's uh, definitely uh, wasn't phoning it in for sure. Um, in, in the, he told me one of his secrets. He said, "Gary, always do this. Your character, whatever your character is, find something that you think belongs to him. Maybe a pocket comb mm -hmm. or a penny or something, and put it in your pocket. And then whenever you feel uneasy about the part, just reach in your pocket and feel that thing that belongs to your character, and it'll help you." So I started wow. doing that. I thought, good idea. But he always does that. He has something on him somewhere that he associates with the part he's playing. Wow, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Now, this film is going to, like you said, we know it's going to screen at the Alma Draft House right. this coming week, Saturday and Sunday, two screenings this next the next weekend. Right. Uh, say be the uh, 20... It's the 2nd of, second of June at 1 o'clock, Saturday. Uh-huh. 3rd of June at one thirty. Village Sunday. for both of them. Yeah, the Alma Village, village yeah. here in. So if you're here in Austin, Texas, for someone that uh, maybe is uh, thinking about coming and seeing the documentary, but did not know anything about Gary Kent's story, what's a, you know, you have a kind of short sell on the film. What would you tell them? You you get the uh, the story of the independent film scene back then, the drive-in movies. You get mm -hmm. you get action. You get the stories of a lot of these directors that he worked with. Mm -hmm. uh, the the real message of this story in, in the end of this film in the end is one of resilience because Gary's still doing it. Yeah. You know, at the end of the movie, you're seeing him on the set. I see that he's on the set in one of the, yeah. yeah, recently he was, I'm, I'm doing another documentary right now that came from knowing Gary and also yeah. knowing Kirk O'Matic here, uh, about, uh, Bob Burns, Robert Burns, who was yeah. the art director on Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. And it's a film called Rondo and Bob about, Bob Burns' obsession with Rondo Hatton, the actor. Mm -hmm. But I say this all because last weekend we shot the scene in a World War One hospital, a recreation scene, where Rondo Hatton is diagnosed with acromegaly, 
which is the condition that made him so strange looking. If you don't know who Rondo Hatton is, Google him and you'll see the face and you'll, you'll know who he is. But Gary Kent came last weekend and uh, played the doctor who diagnoses Rondo Hatton. So I figured I had to get him into something before he left town because he's getting ready to leave Austin behind. You're leaving Austin. I am leaving Austin after these many years. Are you going back to L.A.? Are you going home? I'm going to move to Tucson first for a few months and just reconnoiter a bit and then eventually back to L.A., yeah. Yeah. He's got all my family. family. My family's all over Southern California. So. And how many years have you been here? Since on and off since 1981. So quite a while. That's a long time. Yeah. yeah. yeah the, the, coming from Washington, I'm sure it was it was a, quite an adjustment to come here. And then you were in California in between to come here for this, this Texas heat. Absolutely. And the blazing Texas sun. Oh, man. And the cockroaches. I had never seen these big. Uh -huh. When I first got to Corpus Christi, I thought... Oh, yeah. When I went to active duty, I could stay in college if I wanted to. I was on a scholarship. I could stay, but I wanted to get out and see the world. And I thought, gee, I'll go to Japan, I'll go to Korea, I'll go to China or whatever. Instead, they sent me to Corpus. And I thought, oh, no, that's got to be awful. <laughs> so I flew to Texas and... The plane landed out on the tarmac, and you had to walk to the uh, building. Yeah. I got out of the plane, and there were these cockroaches all over the tarmac, as big as a cat. I mean, they were just everywhere. And I thought, this is the worst place I've ever been in my life. I ended up liking Corpus, but at first I thought, Texas is terrible. Yeah, you got the Padre Island uh, nearby, so you had that you had that to enjoy, being in Corpus Christi. And I'm sure it was still pretty nice even then. Right, um, right, right. In a spring break, couldn't have been a bad deal for you during spring break time when no, when, Pod, no. uh, when the uh, when they hit Padre Island. Um, the cockroaches, by the way, those cockroaches they have their own stunt doubles too. <laughs> <laughs> They're that big. They're I think weird. so. Yeah. They're, They're about to get smushed by a, a shoe. They they have another roll a cockroach that rolls in all of a sudden right, takes right. their spot they take and, the hit. and takes the hit. Yeah. Do you all have enough time to do agree or disagree? It's a rapid-fire question. Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, for Joe O'Connell and Gary Kent, yes, indeed, on this 73rd episode of Thunderpop Podcast, we bring you Agree or Disagree. And this is a special edition Agree or Disagree, especially for you guys. Questions geared toward you guys. So, Evil Knievel, another daredevil from the from that era of uh, daredevilness. Uh, he was a huge television star, especially when I was first, you know, uh, born and kind of as a young child first watching television. I remember, there's a few things I remember about television in the 70s, and Evil Knievel is one of the things I remember. Snake Canyon. Yeah. Right? That's, uh, I remember that as a kid. Yeah, yeah. That was a big thing. So he, he was a huge star in the 1970s. Now, however, today, in today's world, where we have Fear Factor, and we have all these nuts on YouTube, these idiots doing all these crazy stunts on YouTube, do you agree or disagree that if Evil Knievel were to come on the scene in 2018, would he not have been even moved? Would he not even have moved the needle in 2018 because of the climate in uh, in the world today with all the uh, the the crazies on YouTube doing stunts every day and shows like Fear Factor and reality TV? Agree or disagree, Gary? What do you think? Evil? Would he be? If he came on the scene today, if he was just now coming on the scene today, would it not even move the needle? He would be so pissed off. Pardon me, because 
everything is CGI today. So you see all these yeah. great stunts, but they're not really great stunts. They're putting all this stuff around them. I know some kids go out and do things and almost kill themselves trying to emulate evil. But evil was a yeah. biker, and he was a great bike rider. He wasn't really a stuntman. He was a thrill rider yeah. who did thrill shows. So there's only one evil Knievel, and that was him. And I think today he would just walk away from it because it's not at all like it used to be in the old days. Yeah. He, and he, he was For me, he was the real Captain America because he had yeah, the Stars yeah. and Stripes jumpsuit and the helmet. Yeah. Right, right. He had all that going. He would win a, America's Got Talent. Oh, he'd be, yeah. He'd be the winner of it. He would have to. I can't yeah. imagine him not winning that. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned the CGI. I was meant to ask you earlier. There had been some recent uh, unfortunate deaths on sets. I know there was the the Walking Dead over in Georgia. I think last year they had a, a death. Deadpool 2 was filming over a year and a half ago. They had, I believe, a stunt woman that died on the set. And then uh, Tom Cruise, doing his own stunts, hurts himself. Up, yeah. yeah, got banged up pretty good on a jump uh, for the latest Mission Impossible movie. Is that uh, is that unusual that there's been? Has it just been kind of a wave of, of that that's been? Is there more coverage for it now in the news, and so we just are more aware of it, or has it always been the case? Well, it's always been the case, but it's always been hidden because the studios they still don't want the audience knowing they're no. a real stuntman, yeah, and it's not really the actor. They want them to believe the illusion. Yeah. So stuntmen are still fighting for some kind of recognition. Yeah. You know, the Academy Awards, they don't really give an award to stuntmen or action, mm-hmm. although that may be changing. But stuntmen don't like actors that want to do stunts because, yeah. first of all, they're going to hurt themselves right. or hurt someone. And also, they're taking a job away from the stunt guys, yeah. you know, that have to feed their families. Tom Cruise makes enough money as is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tend yeah. to take somebody's job away doing the yeah, stunts. So. He has to prove he's a jock. Which is okay. Yeah. Gary, uh, I discovered not that long ago that Gary was given Hetty, what's her last? Hetty Dietz. Hetty Dietz. Hetty Dietz was was the set photographer for a lot of the independent films. Mm -hmm. Uh, And her husband was, uh, what did he do? Bob Dietz, sound man. Sound sound man on a lot of these these small films. I purchased, she gave Gary her archive Mm -hmm. of photos. And I purchased it from Gary recently. It's something I'd like to... To get out there. But among those mm-hmm. are photos of a stunt that happened on a film. I forget the name of the film. Do you remember? I don't remember. Okay. Small film. Uh, Gary was offered this stunt on this film. 400 bucks, right? Or, or no, I, I he wanted, wanted 400. 400. He wanted 400 bucks. They said, uh, we've got a guy who'll do it for 100. And tell him what happened, Gary. I just said, okay, well then use your guy. You know, not the stunt was to drive a pickup off a pier into the lake. Uh, not a big stunt, but it's got to be done right. You have to wait down the back of the pickup because all the weight is in the motor up front. And they didn't know that, and they didn't wait down the back of the pickup. Long story short, Vic Rivers was a nice guy, but he didn't mm-hmm. know to do that. He was just getting started, and he undercut stuntman to get the gig, to get the job. Mm. And the pickup his wife and kid his son were on the shore watching and he went off in the pickup and of course it went nose first down into about 12 feet of mud and he suffocated wow they, they didn't have they didn't know to have and there's a safety series of people photos on that them. yeah and no they couldn't guys. get to him yeah usually they have a scuba guy in the water. they were trying mm-hmm. at the end that's the last photo of the series yeah. you see the photo of the, this truck going up and then 
And then the last one is them trying to say, "No, it's first. Wow. But is that happens. No. They, did, they cut it out because of... Oh, in the movie itself. In the movie. I, I like don't it. think it is in the movie, is it? I think it? it's still in the movie. I don't know what it is, but... Mm-hmm. Do when we're talking about Tom Cruise doing their own st- actors that do their own stunts that want to be Rambo's when they do their own stunts. So if say I'm an actor and I'm working with you, the stunt man, and I say, I want to do my own stunts. We're playing, uh, uh, cops, uh, partners or, or police, uh, buddy, buddy cop film. And you're doing the stunt work for my, my uh, co-star, but I want to do my own stunts. I've heard that when that happens, a lot of stuntmen, another reason they don't like it, other than the obvious reason that they take taking a work away from another stuntman, is that it could sometimes make your job harder because you're working with a not professional stunt person. Correct. And they can jeopardize you getting hurt. Correct. For them not doing something the right way. Correct. I've, I've done, I think, about eight films here in Austin in the past couple of years. And it would always start out, I would get hired as stunt coordinator too. Mm-hmm. So I'd ask the cast and crew, uh, how many of you have really done stunts? And they all put up their hands right away. <laughs> I've done stunts. They haven't. They walked across the street or something like that. <laughs> That's what they did. And so it's always a mess to try uh-huh. and work with them. And I'd much rather have people that know what they're doing. Yeah. I've done, I've done stunts. I go to HEB right at, as people are getting off work at 530 in the afternoon in Austin, Texas. And that's some stunt work there trying to get in and out of that place. Just to get in and out of the parking lot without, you know, stunt work and then getting in the place is like the uh, matrix where you're doing these slick moves to get around people in the, in the aisles sure. with your cart. <laughs> All right. Number two, uh, on agree or disagree in 2018, it's a big budget tentpole mega franchise world now. With the Avengers, we were talking about Star Wars before before we uh, started recording, uh, the DC films, it goes on and on. Everybody's Every studio is looking for multiverses for their uh, film uh, franchises, like that they can make other films that spin off into other films that spin off into other films, and even TV shows for that matter. But in this industry where that could possibly become kind of a saturation where you've got multi-megaplexes that are, their their four screens are dedicated to this Star Wars film, and another three screens are dedicated to this Marvel film. Could this be a real spot now for a comeback of B movies in 2018? Agree or disagree? Agree. Uh, you know, Gary's been doing these movies a lot lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Werewolf movie. What's the Werewolf movie? I mean, he's doing a lot. Yeah, he's Kurt, still working a lot. Yeah. Uh, Todd Sheets film. What's it called? Bone Hill Road. Bone Hill Road. Yeah, that's yeah. one that he just did. Uh, I would say that I think that the best work being done today is on TV. Definitely, you know? yeah. And, and uh, people who are 18, 20 years old, yeah, they watch they watch TV, but they don't. But they only mm-hmm. watch, they binge watch, you know, and they stuff they that's watch the on demand. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, they yeah. they there's still a big market in horror films. Yeah, because they love to get the films and then have their buddies over and Saturday night they all watch it. Oh, horror, horror films had a huge but strong once in following. A while, yeah, Steve, a great independent film gets made yeah. that somehow creeps through. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of No Country for Old Men. Uh, what was the one done a couple years ago here in Texas? I forget about the two brothers that mm-hmm. robbed the... Hell or High Water. Hell or High Water. Mm-hmm. I thought that was such a good movie. That So once in a while, one one creeps through. That, yeah. But it's hard to compete with it's those huge, big-budget franchise yeah. things. Especially there's, when they occupy multiple screens. Yeah, and, and there's and a yeah. marketplace. But 
but is that movie theater the real market now? Right. That's a good question. It may not be. It's probably it, streaming. Yeah, it's streaming. The tough thing is with the streaming, your movie is immediately stolen. You know, it's still easy to do. Yeah, it's incredibly mm-hmm. easy to do. Yeah, but uh, but that's where it's at. Uh, Love and other stunts. We do have. We went to the American Film Market and got a distributor who's who specializes, actually, more in horror films. Mm-hmm. Wow! But they they heard about Gary Kent and they said, eh, "We want to talk to you." You know, they wanted it. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. and so they're a they're a, a smaller. They just uh, they just took the film to Cannes, to uh-huh. the Cannes Marketplace, which goes along with the Cannes Film Festival. So, so very likely we we'll see we can see uh, you know other than going to the movie theater and seeing it next week at the Alamo Draft House. It'll be streaming and DVD. We'll, so. we'll be seeing it in streaming yeah. and DVD too. Yeah, is there gonna be extra stuff? If you do a DVD, are you gonna have some extra interviews, footage? That would be good because we've got tons of stuff, uh-huh. just tons. Yeah. Tons of stuff that didn't make it in the movie. Yeah, so that'd that's be the fun. tough thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Kirk knows. He's been working with you on it, so he knows a little bit. Okay, last one. With uh, this is something especially for Joe. With documentaries getting more and more notoriety, we're talking about B movies, but documentaries also yeah. are getting more and more notoriety in recent years. And I think a lot of that has to do with this, again for the streaming, yeah. um, with like platforms like Netflix needing to again fill the quota of however many hours of new content they want to add every month. They're turning more and more to documentaries, and then documentaries have gotten really good notoriety. I know a couple of years ago there was a one with the about the uh, the backup singers in the music industry. It was a really good documentary. I remember going to see at the uh, art house theater. But anyway, it's really good documentaries have been coming out. Would you agree that we're in the golden age right now for documentary films in 2018? Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, the, there was incredible stuff done in the in the 70s. I think of with. Yeah, Maisley's uh, people like that. Was the Thin Blue Line? Was that I think it was eighties or seventies? It was eighties. Yeah, yeah, it was a great one. Uh, there was great stuff going on, but you know, there's incredible things going on now. It's weird to me. I think that there's a big emphasis on documentaries that are about issues. Yeah, and and frankly, and this goes by, back to making this and making the other film that I'm making. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rondo and Bob. The the tagline is Bob Burns was a very normal looking guy who was weird, and I mean that in a positive way creative way yeah uh and rondo hatton was a weird looking guy who was normal i'm interested in human stories and Mm -hmm. so you know i i hope that there will continue to be resurgence of those i think you go to film festivals now uh first off as a person who covers films at film festivals Mm -hmm. i'll tell you that the reviewers who have to go to the film festival and have to cover stuff will seek out the documentaries why because they have a natural story usually, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, whereas a lot of the independent uh, fiction films, they're they're hit and miss. Yeah, so you never know. I'm in, but I'm interested in the human stories. There was a documentary I mm-hmm. saw recently about Elaine Stritch that I liked a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was the? I, f- I keep forgetting the guy's name. The guy who was the uh, the other James Bond. Oh, yeah. What's the, his name? They only did. The one that only did one movie yeah. before yeah, he left. Yeah, the, that's brilliant. Yeah, seen it, that was a that was a great documentary, and, and a lot of it was recreation. Yeah. Uh, I, anybody got his name? You got his name? Look up his name so we know. Yeah, we can, we can look that up. I always, uh, uh, I just forget his name. But he was he, he he was a hustler who talked his way into this role with little experience, and then he then he said no to continuing as James Bond. Yeah. And he could have been locked in for life. Uh, 
money success. Oh, the whole there thing. he is. George, George uh, Lazenby? Lazenby, yeah. Lazenby? George Lazenby, mm-hmm. who was there when I saw that screening uh, and, and was a cool guy in person. Uh, Here he is with Telly Savalas. That was actually probably the James Bond film that he's in, I'm, I'm guessing. Or maybe another role. Yeah, but, you know. Oh, here's his James Bond. Photo. There's incredible, there are incredible documentaries being made, and I personally lean toward that human story. I want, I, I love to go and, and go. Maybe it's because I'm a fiction writer too. Is to pull back, the cover and see the the real story of a person, or as real as it's going to be. Mm-hmm. What's know? very strange is, Joe brought this documentary, Love and Other Stunts, to Cinema Wasteland in Cleveland. Yeah. And there are a lot of my fans show up. Stuntmen don't have many fans because no one knows about us. Yeah. That's the way it should he's, be. He's I a guess. god at Cinema Wasteland, which mm-hmm. is one of the big genre film festivals. Anyway, he showed the documentary, and the first half of it is a lot of stunts and a lot of the good stuff that I enjoy. My buddies in the early film and the drive ins. and the, So I love that. But the second half is largely personal. And I thought they're going to hate it because my fans are bikers and people with rings in their ears and their noses and big tats everywhere. And I thought, they're going to hate this. It was the exact opposite. They loved it, the personal side of it. So Joe was right, and I was wrong. There is an audience for that personal story. And those big guys were crying at the end. Yeah, Yeah, some of the bikers were actually. (laughs) Really? Kirk said they're working on the musical. Well, you might have started an idea. You might have spawned something here. I want to. I want to see this musical now. That would be interesting. Yeah, we're going to <laughs> Broadway. Let's. Joe let's. Was that on the side. Yeah, I think okay. we need to get yeah, to work on this. Going. All right. I want to ask you. You know, were you coming from where you covered and you brought this up? You were just mm-hmm. answering that question. You covering film, right? As a journalist, and then now being a filmmaker yourself. And I know that that has. There's been crossover in the past, and sure. um, for people that do that, uh, I think it was Roger Ebert or, or made it made a film at some point. And I know because uh, Kevin Smith started out in movies, then sort of became kind of he did the flip flop and yeah. became a movie um, commentator. Right. Uh, I would call him more of a commentator than a critic for what he does. But now you going into film from from that. Was there a certain kind of did you have to detach yourself from the uh, what you had been doing as a, as covering films to try to be able to have a open yourself up in a different direction as far as creativity or was there a certain amount of what you did covering films that actually you think you just were able to use all of that to help you it's good to have seen a lot but yeah but but you've also been a fiction writer i have an mfa in creative writing yeah and published books short story and all that kind of stuff so i have that kind of aspect to it mm-hmm. uh, uh but Journalism isn't a bad background for it. I mean, yeah. the two of those combined, you have to be able to tell a good story. And making a documentary is making a collage. Yeah. That's the that's the tough work. Mm-hmm. And you got to figure out what goes in and what doesn't. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to one of my old college teachers when he had a memoir come out a few years back. And he, he said that the big decision is what you leave out. Wow. And yeah. You know, and that's the same thing with this because there's parts of like, oh, you know. Mm-hmm. Couldn't fit that in. Uh, we don't have Charles Bukowski in there. He hung out with Charles Bukowski, pissed on Gary's shoes uh, <laughs> outside the outside. What? what what's the I place? hit him and knocked him back in an alley. Uh-huh. So when we were filming, Charles Bukowski was LA's favorite drunk. They liked his writing, but he was also smashed all the time. Uh-huh. And he used to hang out everybody in the 
film industry and theater industry went to a place called the Rain Check Room, yeah. which was on Santa Monica Boulevard. A little hole in the wall, but everybody went there. <laughs> yeah. And on the way to the Rain Check Room was this alley, and Charles Bukowski was always in that alley finishing up a bottle of something, and he would come out and harass people as they walked by. And because he was kind of a grouchy guy anyway. So I knew him, and I had just known him socially around the way. Coming by anyway, he came out, and I was talking, how are you doing, Charles? And all of a sudden, I looked down, and he was peeing on my shoes. <laughs> oh, so I hit him and knocked him back into that alley and just went my way. So I wanted to show Joe that when we but now they've yeah, The alley's totally, gone. The yeah. alley's gone. We went back to the spot, and we were in Los Angeles. No uh, more, no yeah. more uh, hitting anyone. Right. There's always something that's heartbreaking that you have to take yeah, out. Yeah, you got to leave stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you uh, you ever want? I know you're working on another documentary now. You mentioned that. Do you ever yeah. want to do a a, fi- a movie that's scripted fiction? Is that something you've thought about? Maybe with with what I'm doing now, Rondo and Bob, we are doing a lot of recreation mm-hmm. scenes. Uh, so they are. I'm hiring actors, and we're mm-hmm. we're doing them. What we just did was amazing. I mean, I had hired folks who decorated the set. Mm-hmm. It's a World War One hospital. You know, wow. and, and we're and the magic of film. We're we're shooting in the corner of an antique store in mm-hmm. Taylor, Texas, because it looks right. It's got big windows, mm-hmm. and we've got and we've called the local uh, model T club, and they yeah. have cars parked outside the window. That's perfect. Uh, you know, and these people did directed the set for us and the whole thing. Props right. Yeah. Props right. Hire mm-hmm. the the secret lady in Round Rock. Uh-huh. Who does costumes? Oh, secret yeah. lady. She's, she's not known in the Austin film community because she's she's already got too much business, and she, you know. Wow, good for her. So I won't say her name, but she's but she's incredible. She's already maxed. So you know, we you, did all these yeah. things for what on screen will be. I don't know, two minutes tops. Yeah, about two minutes. Something like that. Probably, yeah. But a lot yeah. of production value Basically goes into it. In a short film. Yeah, it was, we and we've been doing a series of those, mm-hmm. uh, and you know. With some tough ones ahead. Uh, yeah. Did you know Bob Burns? I only through Kirk. From what Kirk's told me about uh, you know the project and everything that I've started to now learn more yeah. more so, about him. I met Bob Burns mm-hmm. uh, when I was uh, before I was a film columnist first for the Austin American Statesman, mm-hmm. then the Chronicle, then the Dallas Morning News. I actually had this stupid idea, uh, which was I had been writing about film, covering the film festivals, that kind of stuff. I did a lot for the San Antonio paper. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what Texas needs? They need a column about what's shooting around Texas, a film industry column. So I thought, I'll do that. And I'll syndicate it to all the little newspapers in Texas. But they're cheap bastards and none of them yeah. for it. Uh, and so I was about to give up. And uh, I knew the film page editor at the Statesman, and then they picked it up. So it ran for a few years. And while I, when I was doing that column, uh, I had already met Gary... And Gary had told me about Bob and Bob Burns. I think he liked the the whole notion of it. He was a big donator of blood to the Austin blood bank. And so he did a thing for like his 50th gallon, Mm -hmm. done 50 gallons of donations to him. So I went and interviewed him there. And it's funny because Bob, Bob Burns, uh, Bob Burns killed himself in 2004 and he posted online a picture of him laying in front of a fake headstone that said Burns on it. Well, we went to this event, uh, this blood bank event, and that headstone was there. Mm-hmm. And that photo was taken by Kirk O'Matic. And, and wow. who, who also said, 
Kirk calls me and says on the phone, he says, uh, yeah, I'm looking at this stuff about Bob Burns back when we did this blood bank thing. And Gary Kent walks in the door and I said, am I right behind him? He said, yeah, there you are. Because I, I was interviewing uh, Bob Burns for that column. Uh-huh. So it's that weird little synchronicity. That's, you know. it's amazing. Gary and Bob Burns were friends. And so this kind of, I didn't plan on doing a second documentary. Yeah. You know, because it's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, this one has gone a lot. We've been working on it for a year. Yeah. Uh, and it's been going a, a lot more quickly. We still have a lot of work to do because I got more ambitious, yeah. which is the long way of answering your question is that I am making in many ways, a bunch of mini feature films mm-hmm. with all of these different scenes. We, sh- we shot a scene where Bob Burns interviewed Gunnar Hansen mm-hmm. to be Leatherface in Chainsaw. Totally true. You know, wow. it's, it's all totally true. Bob was doing a little bit of work. He was collecting bones for the Chainsaw set and he was doing a little bit of casting. And so we recreated it. We know a guy, Bob Burns, it could make anything. And one of the things he made was a deep throat pinball machine. He bought an old pinball machine and converted it to the deep throat pinball machine. And we know the guy who owns it. And so we shot our scene and we knew that it, it, it was there in the room when Gunnar Hansen was being uh, auditioned for the role. That's brilliant. So we shot it with the actual machine sitting there. So it was just amazing. Is there any video of that online of that, that pinball machine? Yeah. yeah it, in the movie. We're, It'll be. Will no, it be in that documentary? Well, yeah, it, yeah, it, uh, it appeared in Playboy. It mm-hmm. appeared in a couple of other films that that Bob did. Mm-hmm. It would just be a prop in the background. It was in Mongrel, which is a wow. film that Bob Bird's directed. Bob was always talking me into doing things like giving blood that time and uh-huh. the film festival. Yeah. But I met Bob Burns. Maybe you don't want to put this on film, but oh. when I first moved to uh, Austin. I'm from L.A. Come on, the yeah. '60s. I wanted some pot, uh-huh. and I didn't know anybody sure. here yeah. to get. And a friend of mine from L.A. said, "Call this guy named Bob Burns." Uh-huh. So I called Bob Burns, who did not smoke pot at all. <laughs> he but didn't he drink. That would be smoke. like me calling Kirk to ask him for pot. He would right. be like, "I don't know what you're." Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He'd go off into his whole Kirk tangent. <laughs> if you need editing or you need a cameraman, I'm your guy. But I know nothing about where to get. Right. Cup of yeah, Joe, but I don't know nothing about where to get pot. Yeah, yeah no pot. But he t- turned me on to Third Coast Studios. Uh huh. Yeah. Pot everywhere. Uh-huh. So there you go. That's, that was the. That was the. That's how I met Bob. Was trying to score some weed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone thought I was a narc. <laughs> you were. No one wanted. So it's weird to shoot the scene for that as we're preparing for the documentary to screen. Uh huh. You know, because a foot in both worlds here, but it's also nice because yeah. that's what they say. You know, that whole notion of when they're talking about what you what you've completed, you should be working on the next one. I kept telling you yeah. that yeah. all through the edit. <laughs> yeah. But it's but it's true. I mean mm-hmm. when when nice? when people when you're getting that negative review or whatever, you should already be back you should be working on that next looking one. ahead to your next project oh, yeah. where it doesn't even that's what it is. Yeah. We have a secret visitor in the corner. And it's the same thing with photography. Yeah. Is that you should uh, John Anderson from the Austin Chronicle. John Anderson from the Austin Chronicle. Yeah, City he's been here with us. Uh, but you should be shooting the next picture, right? right? right I'm sure he's already thinking about his next shoot. Uh, I have, yes. While we've been here, yeah, yeah. he's here yeah, with he's, us and he's very involved. But he's also <laughs> thinking about uh, the next one. Yeah, <coughs> and he, he's an incredible photographer. He's done some 
some, you know. Joe's he's by got, himself. He's, thank, he's well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But he's got a book mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's you know, following the protests. We should give you a plug. Yeah, okay, so you was a book. There's a book that we can go we can go get that has your photography in it. Uh, there's a copy at the library at uh, the public library downtown. What's that book called? Uh, In Search of a Revolution. In Search of a Revolution. Yeah, and that said, and you wrote it. It's a photo book. It's a photo oh, book. Yeah, book of photos. But he, but he was. I did some writing, but it's mostly photos. And it's at the Boston Public Library. Yeah, it talks cool. a, talks a lot about that. I have, to check that out. Yeah. I have a library card. I will. You have a library card? Yeah, I'll, I'll have to beat Kirk down there to get it. <laughs> Kirk's Kirk's gonna be me and Kirk could be racing each other at the library. Well, there's another library. So you go to the next library, Kirk. I got this I one. But it, but if you're doing art of any form, uh-huh. you just got to keep doing it. You know, that's yeah. the whole thing. That's how you get better. That's how you yeah make He's new mistakes. About photography. I've been taking daily photos for about probably six years now, mm-hmm. where I have to have a photo every day. Yeah. And some days it's really a struggle because you're trying to have a decent photo. Yeah. Not just a photo of your sandwich, you know. Right. Which is what some people who do that do. You're trying to have a decent photo. And if you're trying to have a decent photo every day, then mm-hmm. once every two months you'll have a good, really good photo. Just something once a year you'll have a amazing. photo that you say, wow, I can't believe I did that. That could have been you in know? a gallery. Yeah, yeah. Exhibit or something. But only if you do it every day. And if you do it every day, yeah. And it's the same thing as a rioter, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, Kirk's Kirk's oh. over here. We, oh, I know oh, you guys. I know you guys have a lot, uh, yeah. lot going on, obviously. Yeah. And uh, there's still tickets available for next still week's screenings. Available. They're going fast. Uh, the seats are reserved at the Alamo. Uh huh. Go to uh, drafthouse.com. Yeah. Look for the look for the village. Village. For, yeah. Make sure it's the Village Theater. Love and other stuff. And it's on there, so you can go in there and pull it up, and then uh, you can go on two uh, two shows next weekend. This or this coming weekend will be the the June June second and June third. June second and June third, and I'm planning on going on the third for sure. I've already you know that's the day that I'm. We going. have an after party at the Austin Visitor Center on Fourth Street. I didn't know if I could say talk about the after party, so I didn't mention yeah, that. Yeah, so it's too people. It, we'll just run out of food if too many people show up. Yeah, if Kirk shows up, you'll run out of yeah. food. It's okay. Uh, it's four to six at the Austin Visitor Center, co-sponsored by the Austin Film Commission. On the Saturday or the Sunday? The Sunday. On the Sunday? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on 4th Street down there. We'll have music. Uh, Gary Sun Chris is a great blues guitarist. Oh, great. Have a good yeah. friend, longtime friend, and who's also a fantastic mm-hmm. blues guitarist, and the two of them will be jamming together. Something I have never seen. I've known these two guys, and I've seen them both play guitar, but I've never seen them play together. Yeah, yeah. So, it's going to be cool. Yeah. That's great stuff. <laughs> and Kirk will record it. Yeah. And he'll have a little sandwich there behind the behind the camera while he's. We got we yeah you know, we got uh, fajitas. Oh, he'll have a fajita while he's filming. There'll yeah, be some got, fajita juice on the yeah. on the lens. Bannister uh, Catering is catering the event. Uh, that's <laughs> great. Plug in for them. Yeah, get a plug in for. Them. They deserve it. Yeah, yeah they're going to do a good job. So looking forward to that. That's next weekend, and very excited to see this film. What's the runtime on it? Uh, 99 minutes. So it's really short. That's not Pretty, short. Well, tight. Yeah. Yeah, but all the stuff that, that we would have, what to get, wait to the we DVD. We had cuts that were much longer. Yeah, yeah. Much longer. There had to be a lot of brutality. I slashing. guess for documentary though, yeah, that's probably about the the length that it's nor- well, the norm. For the Some are short, but a lot short. Yes, we'll do that. Uh, American Masters. You could run more. Yeah, we'll, 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 you could roll out some we'll more of that. You run out more, roll out <laughs> some more of the footage. Yeah. Well, I'll get the DVD to get to see yeah. some of the other stuff that we're going to... And we're, you know, we're talking to incredible folks like Richard Rush, mm-hmm. 
director Richard Rush, uh, talked to Sam Sherman, a little bit to Monty Hellman. Eastside Morales. Eastside Morales. Yes. Yeah. And NYPD Blue. For, yeah. 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 I think he had a, a run on there for a little while. Yeah. He, yeah, he was in Gary's film, yeah. Rainy Day Friends. Great actor, yeah. Early, early in his career, he was mm-hmm. in Gary's film. Good guy, Eastside. Yeah. We still talk every week. Mm-hmm. I've heard he's really good, really good guy. And he he reaches out and he helps uh, new up and coming people over the years. That, that have, I've I've come across some other people that have come across him as well or worked worked with him and so he's a really sure. good guy. Did you see, yeah. uh, talking about TV, did you see Ozark? Ozark. I had not seen Ozark. Oh, he's, he's incredible. He's he's, just, he's, he's brutal in, in Ozark. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. So it's worth watching. That's a Jason Bateman thing. Yeah. Oh, that's oh yeah the Jason Bateman series. So he's yeah. a part of that too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've heard good things. It's it's been on my uh, my list for he's, a while. Esai is a mean mean man. Is he? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I can see that. I think he's a guy that has range that can definitely yeah. play. I mean, he in La Bama, he had a little bit of an edge to him too. The character he played. Yeah, he's great. In La that, Bamba. that was the yeah. first time I, I became aware of him was was La Bamba, and then later I remember in tele, his television work, seeing him in, in TV as well. Yeah. yeah. Bad boys, right? Bad, bad boys was uh, right. Did he shoot it right before right Rainy Day? Right before Rainy Day. Yeah, that's how I found mm-hmm. it was in Bad Boys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was looking for a tough, irascible Latino, young Latino yeah. guy, a gang member. And I was in New York in the hotel room, and his agent sent Esai up. Mm-hmm. And Esai walked in the door with a script, and he said, I own this part. That's how I met uh-huh. him. I thought, man, he's got balls. Uh-huh. You know, that's what I'm looking for is someone with balls. Yeah. So we hired him. He was great. It worked. What he did, came in and, and just showed you, hey, I'm ready to go. Yeah, yeah. This is this for me. Speaking of working, one more thing I want to mention is uh, I was reading about Joe. You were you did some extra work while you were covering films and all, filming yeah, in Austin. Yeah, that's how it kind of started because I was a grad student, and so I had the main requirement mm-hmm. of being an extra. Yeah. Flexible schedule. Yeah, that's really that's the, <laughs> that's the main so requirement. I, yeah. So I would do it and I'd write about it. And that's how I became a film writer, really. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the first one I think I did was uh, this is a long time ago. Courage Under Fire. Yeah. And I that's where I noticed that we had some crossover because I did a lot of extra work in the late mm-hmm. 90s in Austin. Mm-hmm. And we had some crossover, I know, at least on two or three projects. But you Courage Under Fire. Uh-huh. Was that the one where you were extra? I'm, it, I'm in the same scene twice. You're in the same scene twice as two different people. Yeah, yes. the, the, the blurry guy on the telephone in the background. <laughs> yeah, and then and then the patron on the other side. Yeah, it was cool. It was Scott Glenn and mm-hmm. uh, Denzel Washington, and watching those guys act. Yeah, was incredible. Those are those are powerful actors. I was uh, one of the uh, graduates from military school with Meg Ryan, so uh, you can oh, okay. see. Kind of a blur. If you get the uh, get it on widescreen, you, you see me, and I'm a blurred out uh, graduate in the background. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't looked at that. Yeah, I haven't looked at Courage Under Fire in a long time. But as you can see, I have I have pretty bushy eyebrows, black mm-hmm. bushy eyebrows. So you can definitely see my eyebrows <laughs> okay. come out really well on widescreen. <laughs> Mister yeah. Eyebrow. I was in Varsity the, Blues. The background show uh, is another movie. Yeah, yeah it is another movie. <laughs> Varsity Blues, two days in a topless bar. Uh huh. Which is real weird because they went into the landing strip and they cleared out all of the oh, topless yeah. bar furniture mm-hmm. and put in their own topless bar furniture. Mm-hmm. And then they poked, uh, they pumped in this uh, fake smoke and it was summertime. It's always summer. It was summertime when they were shooting mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. And they have to turn the air conditioner off for the sound. And so all that fake smoke's in there and, and they're taking extras out on stretchers. 
because they were just passing wow. out. Yeah. And my job was to give the dancer a dollar bill. Uh-huh. And then she would give it back to me and I'd give it to her again. Uh, you know. That's a... Uh, that's our job. Somebody's got to do it. Tough job. Somebody has to do it. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't give you several dollar, one dollar bills. And that was like Paul Walker, you know? Yeah. Paul Walker. One of his early. Uh, Khan's son. The one yeah. who's in Hawaii, Hawaii Five-0 now. Hawaii Five-0 he's now. A, he's, he was a real, I don't know if he was being method actor or uh-huh. what, but he's a little guy. And yeah. I'm not a little guy. Uh, and he was acting like he was going to punch me. And I'm just an extra on the set. Yeah. I didn't even talk to the guy, but it's like, whoa. Uh and uh, there was a lot of people in that movie that, that have gone on mm-hmm. to decent stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the what's his name? The Dawson's Creek guy. Uh, the Vanderbeek. Yeah. James Vanderbeek. Very yeah. nice guy. Yeah. Very nice guy. Yeah, he seems like it. Comes, always came off as kind of being really nice. I actually auditioned for it. I had a did you for a, a, a one uh, one day of work. I didn't get in because I was I was you know at an age where I looked younger than I was, and so I would get calls to do high school roles, uh-huh. and uh, occasionally I'd get cast if. They wouldn't ask me my real age in the audition. And this one, they asked me my real age in the audition. And what I didn't learn, I wish I had learned later, was the right answer was, how old do you need me to be for this role? Oh, yeah. I used to be too honest. I'd tell them the age. And then they were like, if they were really trying to be, you know, consistent, they would be like, ah, we really like you, but we can't, you know, it's not the right age for the the part. But I looked, you know, at 28, I looked 18. So, yeah, yeah, you know, I'd get. And I was always, for me, it was a vehicle to write about it. So mm-hmm. I would do all these pieces from the set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of led me to the deal about doing the film column and everything. Because I, I did uh, uh, Richard Linklater's worst movie, uh, the uh, Newton Boys. Newton Boys. I'm sorry, Richard Linklater. Yeah, I was in that too. I was yeah. extra on that. Yeah, I, was, I ended up on the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. But I did that and I went to the statesman and said, hey, I got, was extra in this thing. Mm-hmm. So, oh, we got a high school kid who's already done that. Yeah, and so I thought about what I could do, and somebody I knew from the Statesman had become an editor at the San Antonio Express News, and it still is, and and uh, still is, and introduced me to another editor, and that guy said, "Why don't you start covering film for us?" They ran my little piece, said, "Why don't you start covering Austin film for us?" Because it's where it's happening, and so I would go to South by Southwest, I would go to the Austin Film Festival, mm-hmm. and and write reviews and stuff from that. So, so a lot of fun people watching you can do on the sets as an extra. Yeah. And, and you get to see a lot of really cool things behind the scenes, observing the director and how they work. and Yeah, and they never knew that I was there as a writer. So yeah. That, that, I, that I was actually looking at stuff. Uh-huh. You know, I was at the landing strip for, for Varsity Blues, and I was looking back behind the, in the back room where they had all the Polaroid photos of the people who were never allowed in the landing strip ever again. Uh-huh. Posted on the wow. <laughs> so I put that, that st- kind of stuff in the article. The landing strip blacks, uh, blacklist. Yeah, that's a long time ago. So they have, whole, they have a whole new blacklist now, I'm sure. I'm sure it's been redone, yeah. They, they may not use Polaroids anymore either. They may have a, a new, new setup, new platform of how they keep track of that. Yeah. Yeah. You, what's that? Streaming, Streaming it right. yeah, on, a, on a Facebook it's page on or something. It's behind. That's a literal Facebook wall. Yeah. It's a, did you have, you find it because you were kind of a fly on the, you had the opportunity to be a fly on the wall on those sets, being an extra that was there also observing to write mm-hmm. about it. Did, it. did it become a problem at any point where someone found out, they kind of found out what was going on and they didn't want you there because they. They didn't quite, nobody ever quite got that. Yeah. Uh, and if, and I remember, I think on Courage Under Fire, I said, yeah, I'm going to write about it. Mm-hmm. So you, did you ask permission? It's like, no, I don't have yeah. to ask anybody permission. You know, they're, yeah. they're, uh, the Austin guys are very secretive. 
Yeah. And Robert Rodriguez is very secret. They are, yeah. Uh, I did not show up to write about it, but my nephew was a, an extra in the original Spy Kids. Yeah. And my sister couldn't take him, so she asked if I could go. Mm-hmm. And I told them I was going to take him, and they called me because they said, we know your name. <laughs> You're going to have to sign a confidentiality agreement. Uh... It's like, uh, but it was interesting, you know, all the same. I just brought him there. Yeah. But you had it. I did not write about it. Yeah, because you had to sign a confidential agreement. Even though I agreement. saw, uh, what's that actor's name? Who was the who was the term the other Terminator? Oh uh, well, they had, huh? Patrick. Yeah, the uh, it's Patrick's. It, what's his name? From T two. Yeah, that, where he was the liquid metal. He's the you know. Yeah. He was a lot scarier than than Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was. Yeah, he was. He was pretty cool. But he was getting. He was just doing his uh, costume fitting. Yeah. And so we pa- we crossed paths. He he was going into the he was leaving the room that we were going Robert into. Patrick. Robert, Robert Patrick. Patrick. Yeah, he played T T one thousand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he kind of nodded at us in passing. Uh huh. Yeah, he did have kind of a very intimidating. He was he was great. Stature wise, way smaller than Schwarzenegger, but very intimidating. Sta- yeah, he's probably five nine. Yeah. You know. But a very intimidating aura about him. The yeah, way he played, yeah, great actor. Can't thank you guys enough. I know you've been so busy. We're getting ready for the the, the Alamo screening and, and going around uh, doing stuff with uh with Jack from the Chronicle. Uh, but to give us some time here at Thunderpop and come by and do this, like, it was an honor, a true honor to have you both here. Uh, Gary, Joe, I, thank uh, you, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm looking forward to seeing the film uh, again. Get on the Alamo Village uh, website. There's still a few seats left. Special menu. Can we get a special stunt, <laughs> be cool. stunt man menu? I don't think we get that that big a treatment. You never know. What would be on the I'll stunt? Bring my video there you go. Kirk will bring his Kirkmanic video art. Yeah. St- I don't know what would be in a stunt man sandwich. Something on fire. Probably. Something really spicy. spicy. Yeah. Extra hot. Yeah. Sure You're, yeah. Danger Ranger. There'll be the Danger Ranger sandwich. There you go. I like it. Yeah. Now it is time for thoughts and advice. In order to do my job, I have to ask myself, who is Tom Cruise? What is Tom Cruise? Why is Tom Cruise? When is Tom Cruise? (laughs) I think if you're gonna be a really good stunt double, you have to really become one with the actor. You have to walk like the actor, uh, talk like the actor, uh, legally change your name to sound like the actors. I don't think of myself as a stunt double, really. It's more like I'm a stunt one bull. I don't think Tom's going to want to do that kick. All right, that's not the way he moves. He doesn't pivot that way. He likes to lunge left. He doesn't usually scoop under right. I think it's a bad idea he's never going to go for. It's not realistic. It's not a Tom Cruise kick. Tom said he wanted to go with a kick. (laughs) Uh, I've done 14 films with Tom, all right? So I think I have a pretty good idea of what Tom does or doesn't want to. How's that kick coming along, huh? He doesn't think you'd go with a kick. What? <laughs> That's... <laughs> the way we work is he'll go through sometimes and do do the scene, and um, it, it, it's helpful for me because it gives me that outside perspective. You know what? I think we have too many kicks in the movie, Tom. I mean, I never say to Wu's face, but I think you got... You know, like, how many times can we look at you kicking a guy and then getting kicked in the face? I just... You know what? Kick, kick. Let's call okay. it... You know what? Let's call it kicking impossible. You could go... Let's call it... Let's call it kicking impossible. You know, he's harmless. He's harmless. He's harmless. He's... <laughs> okay, cut, cut! Out of Tom. 
Tom Cruise does uh, most of his own stunts, so he doesn't really need a stunt double. <laughs> but uh, we make good use of uh, the other Tom Cruise. <coughs> <coughs> Harder. I mean, I'm always thinking, I'm always brainstorming ways to make the fight look better. Uh, he come, an ambulance, he comes jump yeah, right over the right. hill. John, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, I just, it's a crazy thought, I just got this idea, but uh, what if when Tom jumps off of the bike and when they're both coming at each other, if right before, and this is just something that just flew in my head here, if he turns to camera and goes, this mission, it just got a hell of a lot more impossibler. Boom, then you do the hit. Think about it. Go away. Joe O'Connell, Gary Kent, I want to thank you all so much for joining us on Thunder Pop. And Jack from the Austin Chronicle. Thank everyone. Have a great day, hour, month, millisecond. Peace. Thunderpop was a Hit the Bricks production.